beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we are exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism and the beauty of resistance? I am Reverend Kelsey Beebe, pronouns she, her, hers. I am an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and I serve as a local pastor at two UCC churches just south of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as well as the executive minister of the nonprofit Dancing Pastor Ministries, and I host the Lady Preacher podcast. I live in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on the homeland of the Potawatomi peoples alongside Lake Michigan. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December, 2014, being led by minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. The word is resistance. Let us pray together. God of many blessings, we pray today for peace and healing in your world. May each person who is listening today be filled with your love and accompanied by your grace. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds today as we absorb your good news. In your name we pray. Amen. We are reading today from the New Revised Standard Version, and I invite you now to listen to these words from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Here ends our reading. Friends, this text has so much we could unpack. There is a lot. We have anger, reconciliation, adultery, divorce, making oaths, and we could probably spend an hour doing exegetical work on each section. Instead, we're just going to break it down along topic lines. This particular section of scripture is found in Matthew 5, which is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Anytime you see something from Matthew chapters five through seven, know that it's all his one big sermon. Now, most scholars think that these are a collection of Jesus teachings over many years. He didn't necessarily stand up on a mountain and preach this as one long sermon, but it was a good way for Matthew to cohesively collect several of Jesus's teachings into one place. And that's part of why we have such a wide range of topics here. This portion of the Sermon on the Mount is often referred to as a series of antitheses or a series of Jesus almost rebutting the Torah. But just prior to this section, this selection of verses in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I'm not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is not trying to teach against the Torah or against Jewish law. But instead, he's trying to show us how to live more fully into the spirit of those laws. There's a a collection of rabbinic teachings and commandments called the Pirkei Avot. And please forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. But it's often translated as the ethics of the fathers. So it's this collection of, of rabbinic teachings and commandments. And one of the very first verses is a commandment to, quote, make a fence around the Torah, end quote. If you think for a moment about how a fence functions, it provides a protective layer, whether it's around a house or a park or some kind of a building. 
The idea then of making a fence around the Torah is to provide ethical guidelines that go beyond just the letter of the law and move into the spirit of the law. So the fence around the Torah creates this protective layer. So we don't even get close to disobeying that commandment. For example, we have from today's reading verse verses 21 and 22, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. In these verses, Jesus is building a fence around the Torah. When the commandment is to not even get angry, that builds a fence, a protective layer around the commandment, do not murder, right? Because we won't risk escalating to murder if we aren't even getting angry. Jesus does the same thing with adultery in verses 27 and 28. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then again, with verses 33 through 37 about how we should not swear falsely. Jesus tells us, don't even swear at all. Just let your word be yes, yes, or no, no, and let it be at that. Otherwise you risk speaking an untruth. In all of these verses, Jesus is not abolishing the law or the Torah. He's trying to build a fence around it to protect its core values. For Jesus, it's about moving beyond the letter of the law and into its spirit, moving beyond the bare minimum requirements of what actions we aren't supposed to do and getting us to understand it is also about the inner work. It's easy, hopefully, to obey the commandment of do not murder, but to not even get angry, that is a challenge. And it's one that I don't think Jesus necessarily believed was humanly possible, right? After all, he even shouted at Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then he flipped tables in the temple. So we know Jesus was angry. So it's important to note the use of hyperbole in Jesus's speech. He doesn't actually want you to tear out your right eye if you lust after another person or cut off your hand. But again, with all of this, Jesus is trying to get us to go beyond just the bare minimum and using hyperboles and extremes are a way again to build that protective fence around the Torah. The essence of this idea of building a fence around the Torah is that it makes violation of the commandments that much more difficult. Now, <laughs> you may have noticed that I skipped the divorce section so far in what we've been talking about. The two verses concerning divorce could really take hours to unpack. And I am not an expert on this, but it is particularly important to always name Anytime we read this passage, how it has been used to entrap folks in dangerous situations and harmful relationships. And I know some folks will go the route of saying that Jesus was trying to protect women from the social and financial harm that came with divorce. But many Jewish scholars say that's a really common misconception. Divorce wasn't necessarily a rampant practice in Jesus's time. 
And Jewish law had protections within it for women who experienced divorce. They weren't just tossed out with nothing. They received financial as well as social protections by law. So it's a misrepresentation of first century Jewish culture to say otherwise. And with that, as much as it would be nice to lean into the feminist side of Jesus here, we have to be really careful that our Christian feminism doesn't become anti-Semitism. So all of this then begs the question, what on earth do we do with this passage? Did Jesus really insist that people should never get divorced except for on grounds of sexual immorality? And I think that's worth a healthy critique. In other places within his teachings in scripture, Jesus includes the phrase, what God has brought together, let no one separate. Jewish scholar Amy Jill Levine has a a brilliant reframe of this that perhaps when it comes to marriages that have been marred by trauma and abuse, that maybe that isn't a relationship that God brought together. To quote her directly, she says, a marriage that looks like a battlefield is not a marriage sanctioned by God, which I think is a beautiful reframe of that passage. If you want to learn more about the Sermon on the Mount, I highly, highly recommend Amy Jill Levine's book, Sermon on the Mount, A Beginner's Guide to the Kingdom of Heaven. Especially as a Jewish scholar, she has brilliant insights into Jesus's teachings, especially how they connect to early rabbinic teaching, how they fulfill the law rather than abolish it, and how sometimes our Christian understanding of Jesus's teachings can really wade into the waters of anti-Semitism. And Amy Levine helps us build a fence around that so we don't wade into those waters. Before we end, I want to return to an earlier part of the passage that we haven't addressed yet. And that's verses 23 through 26, which I'll, I'll read for us again. Jesus says, so when you are offering your gift at the altar, If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this idea of of seeking reconciliation with your neighbor before you can go before God, to me, is really powerful. And this teaching also connects along multiple faith traditions. It was a part of Jewish practice and a requirement to seek reconciliation with your neighbor before reconciliation with God was possible. It's also part of the Muslim faith. I interviewed a Muslim woman once who shared that before she could take her pilgrimage to Mecca, she had to reconcile with anyone she had ever harmed, whether they were aware of the harm or not. She spoke of the really awkward conversation she had with her mother-in-law when she had to call her to say, you don't know that I spoke ill of you, but I did. And I am so sorry. So I I want to highlight this idea of reconciliation with our neighbors today 
especially because what it means for us as white Christians to consider what the notion of reconciliation means within the work of racial justice. What does it mean that we are called to seek reconciliation with our black, brown, indigenous, Asian siblings before we can seek reconciliation with God? How might it change the way we practice our faith? How might it change the ways we go about this work of anti-racism? So often I feel like we as white folks put the onus on our siblings of color to forgive us and to ease our guilt. Or as many black leaders and teachers say, we as white folks expect them to give us a cookie or a gold star for the work we are doing. But the work, especially with reconciliation, is ours alone to do. And so what does reconciliation here look like? I don't know that I have the exact answer, but it's a question I hope to continue chewing on. I think right now for me, it means doing the work. It means learning and reading and listening, showing up where I can, but not taking up all the space. It means following rather than leading. Reconciliation for me connects deeply to the idea of repentance. And the word that Jesus uses for repentance literally means to turn around. When you realize you're going the wrong way, when you realize harm is being done, when you realize relationships are broken and communities are torn and systems are built to uplift some and oppress others, turn around. Work against the current that we have created and make a new way, make a new path. And that path is what leads to reconciliation. For me, it all connects back to that idea of building a fence around Torah. Jesus cares deeply about how we function as God's beloved community, as God's kingdom here on earth. And he wants us to not just follow the bare minimum. He wants us to really be about it. A friend of mine in college, Ivana Barra, was a fellow resident advisor or RA with me. And something he often said, which I actually learned more recently has its roots in the black community is don't just talk about it, be about it. I'll say that again. Don't just talk about it, be about it. That's the work we are called to as Christians too. It's not enough to follow the letter of the law. We are called to follow its spirit too. It's not enough to just read about anti-racism and spend a lot of time just thinking about it in our heads, we are called to be about it in our everyday lives as well. And so to close, leading us into our call to action, when we think about what it means to be about it, I want to share something I have been hearing from Black leaders recently, which is the call to see Black History Month as a time not just to focus on the work of racial justice and learn more about the civil rights movement, but really a time to learn from black joy and black wisdom and black creativity as well. The Instagram account at served fresh recently posted a quote that says slavery is white history. How we survived it is black history. There's this call to focus Black History Month, not so much on the trauma, 
but on the triumph. To pay attention and learn from Black joy and Black faith and Black artists and authors and poets to, again, not just see Black history through the lens of trauma, but through the lens of triumph. For today's call to action, then, my invitation to you is that as you do the work of repentance that will lead towards reconciliation, go learn about all the triumphs of the Black community. Yes, read about anti-racism, but also maybe read a novel, a mystery novel by a Black woman, or follow Black liturgies on social media and pray some of the prayers written by Cole Arthur Riley, or look at some Black art, or support a Black-owned business, especially if you know one that is local to you. I know here in Kenosha, we have Black coffee that just opened. So lean into learning about and celebrating Black triumphs in our world. And know that is a part of, if not most of, the history. As we close, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for showing up, for listening, for being a part of this work. Thank you to each person who's part of our recording team at Surge Faith. And thank you to our incredible sound editor, Claire Hitchens, who makes the magic happen every week. And now, my friends, I invite you as we close to receive this blessing. May you go forth into your day, into your week, into your life knowing that you are one of God's beloved children. May you sense God within you and around you, and may you feel the interconnectedness with all of God's beloved creation, both in this life and the next. May you go forth held in the loving arms of our creator, redeemer, and our sustainer. Go in peace. Amen.